Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Antifractory Library, and welcome to another edition and a wonderful edition of our Writer's Live series. I first have to thank all of you for braving a torrential rain. I know it's been raining all day to come here tonight, but I have to also give a special shout out to our partners and sometimes. Uh, and this, even though this isn't mystery, our partners in crime, like I say, the Ivy Bookstore. I know all of you are so pleased that the Berlins um, are still supporting and being part of the Baltimore reading community. And, and they are shouting out to the book clubs, I think, here, book club people. And we just want to thank them. So if you could give the Berlins a hand. is because this is a special night and I have to tell you I know some of you think that you know having a winning baseball team means something and all like that but for readers and book lovers having an international bestseller and best-selling author here in Baltimore at the Pratt Library is a lot for us. So we feel like we won the World Series and everything like that. You know him, the runaway bestseller, Little B, and he's here to discuss his new novel, Gold, from England. And I have to say that um, we also have a little spot. We're really fortunate to have a little spot on WBL where we recommend books. And so we recommended gold right about the time of the Olympics, and we built it up, and we said that, you know, you were going to come. And we had so many, and I think I'm saying this right, tweets, <laughs> and Twitters, and all of that kind of stuff, saying, when's he coming, and when's he coming, and all of that. So it really is a pleasure uh, to welcome you to Baltimore, to welcome you to the Pratt Library, and I know you all want to hear from him, Mr. Chris Cleese. much for the lovely introduction. Um, I'm so honoured to be here. This is lovely. Thank you so much for coming out and for braving the rain. I, I, I'm really impressed by that. Thank you. Um, I, this is my favourite part, I think, of the job of being a writer. Uh, I'm, I'm mostly um, writing on my own um, in a shed which I built myself at the end of our garden. And I, whatever you think of my writing, I think I'm a better writer than I am a shed builder. <laughs> when it rains like this, it, it leaks. Um, I spend a lot of time positioning jam jars and buckets under points in the roof and, and, and not enough time crafting sentences. And sometimes it can get very frustrating. And then eventually, you know, I finally finish a book and they do send me out blinking into the light. And, and, and so this is my favourite bit. Thank you very much for being here. It makes it very meaningful for me as well. I'm really honoured um, to be here at this library, the Not Grant Free Library. It's a beautiful place. And we, we do not have this at all back home. Oh, sorry, can you tell I'm not from round here? <laughs> I, um, I, I flew in uh, yesterday from London, where I live. Uh, we, we don't have um, such a beautiful system of public libraries, of public spaces where people can come and there's um, free talk uh, amongst equals. I, I love this. Uh, it's a real honour to be hosted here. Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about my new novel, which is called Gold. Um, I propose to talk to you for about half an hour, maybe a little reading from it. 
I don't know, am I getting notes there? Yeah. Right, I'll do a reading. Sometimes people don't like the reading. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy just to talk around it too. And then, questions and answers. And this is my most favourite bit of every evening. What other format of show do you get to just ask anything? I think that's brilliant. You can, um, you can ask anything about anything. It doesn't have to be restricted to my writing either. Um, the first event of this talk which was in July, um, was at a bookstore in New York. Um, and I've gone the whole nine yards. I've done my talk about literary theory and what my authorial intent was. And the first question was, um, OK, so how well do you know Her Majesty the Queen? <laughs> <laughs> and were you or were you not invited to her recent Jubilee celebration? <laughs> so you don't have to restrict it to writing. I'm really happy to answer questions about this book or any of my other novels or my journalism or whatever. I'm here for you and delighted to be here, so ask anything. Um, I'd like to start by uh, reading you a few pages from, uh, from Gold. Um, since it's my new one, it's a good place to start. Um, in Gold, it's the story of a big sporting rivalry between two women at the top of their game. Uh, and I'd like to introduce you to them. I'd like to introduce you to um, Zoe, who's probably the most favourite character I've ever written, um, because she's a menace, and she just leaves a trail of destruction in her wake, and I love her to bits. Um, I'm going to introduce you to her through the medium of her coach, uh, who's a guy called Tom, um, he's in his mid-60s, um, and I hope that his thoughts on her will give you an idea of her character. Tom Voss still remembered how it had felt for him, back in Mexico in 1968, to miss out on Olympic bronze by one-tenth of one second. He could feel the anguish of it, even now, in his chest, raw and unavenged. Forty-four years later, he still noticed the sharp passage of every tenth part of every second. The inflections of time were the teeth of a saw, bisecting him. This was not how other people experienced time. They noticed its teeth indistinctly, in a blur of motion, and they were amazed to wake up one day and find themselves cut in half by it like the assistance of a negligent magician. But Tom knew how the cut was made. He took a call from his athlete's agent while he was soaking in the bath, persuading his knees to unlock. Zoe's been sleeping around again, the agent said. It's all over Facebook. <laughs> Facebook? said Tom. Oh, it's a social networking site, Thomas. People use it to exchange information with friends. A friend is someone who... Yeah, said Tom. I know what Facebook is. Zoe's got a lot of likes on it, right? Yeah, 90,000. <laughs> he held the phone between his ear and his shoulder while he massaged his knees. His inflamed ligaments weren't responding to the application of ibuprofen rub. In truth... He knew that they would only respond to his applying several decades of top-level coaching insight to his own life. It was maybe time to admit that a 66-year-old man shouldn't be doing such heavy weights in the gym. But hey, there were accountants who messed up their own taxes. 
there were doctors who smoked Marlboro Reds. Why should he be the first old man to listen to himself? He was a sports coach, he was not a pioneer. So, anyway, the agent was saying, she sleeps with this guy, and apparently he wakes up and realises who she is, and then he goes and plasters it all over the internet, where, right at this moment, the salacious details are being read by every single person on Earth, or with the exception of the Chinese, because Facebook is blocked there. Oh, and you, Thomas, because you are a reactionary old man with no interest in fun stuff. Do you want me to read you the filth he's posted? No, said Tom, not really. I'm going to read it to you, she said, <laughs> as if you'd never spoken. And Tom heard her out, but he didn't know what he was supposed to do with the information. I'm Zoe's coach on the track, he said, finally. Who she takes to bed is her own business, right? Yeah, said the agent, but this is just to keep you in the loop and to suggest that... But Tom growled. What did a loop have to do with it? Why couldn't people just say, I wanted to give you the information? Is everything all right? said the agent. You made a sort of noise. Yeah, said Tom. Actually, I growled at you. <laughs> it's an Australian thing. Oh, and I guess it worked because you stopped talking. Look, said the agent. I'm just trying to help, okay? No, said Tom. What you're trying to do is to protect your 15%. Yeah, said the agent, but she's the face of Perrier, Tom. It's worth protecting. Look, said Tom. If fizzy water wants a face, that's fizzy water's problem. My job is to help Zoe win gold in the sprint in the London Olympics. Yeah, said the agent, but... What I'm saying is that we're on the same side here. And surely it can't help your athlete to focus being all over Facebook like this. I won't disagree, said Tom, but what do you want me to do? Shut down Facebook? I mean, I'll check with my broker, but I'm pretty sure I don't own it. <laughs> Could you just have a talk with Zoe? She respects you. Tom smiled. I've been trying to calm Zoe down since she was 19. If I had my way, I'd keep her asleep whenever she wasn't training or racing. I'd pop one of those little tranquilizer darts into her with a blowpipe, like they do with tigers in the wild. But what can I do? I'm a coach. All they give us is a whistle and a stopwatch. The agent said, well, I hope you can do something. Because this will be all over the papers tomorrow, and these things have a habit of spiralling. You should at least encourage her not to give them any more ammunition. Tom sighed. I'll pull her in, and I'll see what I can do. That's all I can promise. Oh, thanks, Tom, said the agent. I owe you one. Yeah, well, maybe you can make me the face of something. The agent laughed. Through the phone, it sounded like a goose honking with its head jammed in a half-empty syrup can. And what would you be the face of? I don't know, said Tom. Tylenol? Please avoid that. He clicked over the call and he thought about it. 
And then he texted Zoe to be at his flat in an hour. If he was going to assert some authority over her, it had better be on his patch. This was rule number one of tiger training. You make sure that the beast knows it's coming into your territory. And Zoe texted back straight away. She said, okay, boss. She was a good girl. She knew what it was about. She'd show up, he'd tell her off, and then he'd make them both a cup of tea and send her on her way. And still, he felt a lurch of worry for Zoe. He had tried so hard to get it right with her. He'd been a terrible dad himself, but Zoe and Kate, his two athletes, sometimes felt like his second chance. And he cared more than he probably should on his salary for these two women he'd trained since they were 19. He let himself daydream about what he would do to the guy who'd smeared Zoe all over the internet. They were pretty good, these vengeance fantasies. With functioning knees, you could kick all kinds of shit out of a fellow. <laughs> this was one of the many advantages that wishful thinking held over reality. Still, he did care about Zoe. She was hard to read, and maybe that's why he liked her so much. For all he knew, she really believed in the good-looking losers that she fell for. He often tried to talk about it with her, but she always made a joke of it, as if arriving for her early morning training session with her heart in tiny pieces was the most everyday evil to be endured, like losing an earring or not finding a seat on the bus. She was defensive, and sometimes that came out as sarcasm, and she was right. What would he know about a young woman searching for love? But if Tom had to pin it down, he would say that she was probably more vulnerable than reckless. He couldn't blame her for being desperate. The odds against Zoe finding love rose every day. She was only getting more notorious, and men were only getting worse. The planet was filling up with good-looking young worldlings, built entirely of opposites, cancelling themselves out and, speaking as a bloke, leaving nothing that you'd honestly want to go for a drink with. This new species of guys, they paired city shoes with backwards beards. They played in bands, but they worked in offices. They hated the rich, but they bought lottery tickets. They laughed at comedies about the shittiness of lives that were based quite pointedly on their own. And worst of all, they were so endlessly gossipy. Every single thing they did, from unboxing a phone through to sleeping with his athlete, they had this compulsion to stick it online and see what everyone else thought. Their lives were a howling vacuum that sucked in attention. He didn't see how Zoe could ever find love with this new breed of men with cyclonic souls that sucked like Dysons and never needed their bag changed in order to keep on and on sucking. Tom swore at himself and he put the thought away. The agent was right, he was an old man. Also, he was probably thinking about Zoe too much. 
He checked his watch. 40 minutes to go till she arrived. His watch was a Casio. It was splash-proof. Oh, and it did exactly one thing, which was to tell the time. This was another point of difference between him and guys these days. They all wore James Bond watches with separate chronometer dials, resistant to a depth of 1,000 metres. What did they think was going to happen to them? That they would be thrown clear from the stores where they worked and sink to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, from which they would swim clear only owing to their ability to time events to the split second. (laughs) Those guys would not know a fraction of a second if it jumped up and denied them an Olympic medal. They had no concept of what could be won and lost in one. Time was wasted on this new breed of man who could spend a whole night with a woman and then upload it in less than a minute. that very few of us have in the long term. I mean, well, I'm assuming that very few of us have. You all seem like a really nice bunch of people. (laughs) It's really hard to have a grudge against someone for that long. Now, rivalry has a lot in common with hatred, especially when I'm talking about sporting rivalries. You have to, at some level, you have to really dislike them to think it's worth beating them again and again for years to gain the kind of psychological edge over someone that you need to have at the elite level to keep beating them. At some level there's a grudge, at some level there's a dislike. It's very rare to be able to hold that kind of antipathy towards someone in your head for a long time. But then on the other hand, a rivalry has a lot in common with love, in that it elevates both parties to it to be more than they could be on their own. And the history of rivalry is full of these stories of people who become greater because of someone they basically hate. It's an extremely weird form of human relationship, and I became obsessed by it. I also wanted to talk about ambition. Now, we live in a world where we're told that ambition is everything. We're brought up from the very earliest age to succeed and to believe that that's really important and that we should sacrifice a lot at the altar of success. And the people who embody that ideal more than anything are Olympians. We idolise them. And when they step up onto that top step of the podium and collect their gold medal, that's considered to be a high point of their lives and of ours just by witnessing it. We get these elated emotions. And it's true, and it's beautiful, and it's really worth something. But I wanted to think about the cost of that. I wanted to think about the cost of that in the rivalry. Because Olympians have something that none of us have in our everyday life, which is that in order for them to succeed, everybody else on Earth must fail. How, how many people have that in their day jobs? 
Also, the more I dug and the more I started to ask questions of these athletes, the more I found out that the people they're beating in order to step up onto the podium are often their best friends. It's a crazy and screwed up world, right? If, if you get very good at a sport, um, let's think, hmm, baseball. Uh, apparently, you guys are really good at baseball. Congratulations. Um, it's a sport that I know about as much as I know about the surface of Mars. A little bit. But I believe it's a very big deal, and congratulations. Um, but if you get really good at baseball, um, at the age of 12, people identify the fact that you're great, and you'll get sent off to be coached, right? You'll go off to an academy. Um, in athletics, this is more and more the case. Um, in cycling, which is the sport that I'm writing about, people go and they start competing at the very highest level against people who are also the best people in the country. And they form these great friendships. And because there's only room for one person at the top of their sport, the people who are their closest friends in the sport end up being their bitterest rivals. It's a story that's repeated again and again. And I wanted to talk about the human cost of that sort of victory. And it turns out that these athletes are some of the smartest and the most engaging subjects that I've ever researched. Uh, when you go and uh, watch an interview with athletes on the finish line, um, it's often not very exciting or interesting. Typically, um, the reporter will give these people the microphone and they will ask a question like, well, how do you feel? You know, you've just won this race. And the athlete will still be out of breath. And they will say something like, I feel absolutely fantastic. I'm just totally elated. It's really hard to describe. It was incredible to see all of those flags out on the course. Thanks, guys. I'm really pleased I didn't let the team down. Thanks. And that's the typical profile that we get of an athlete. And you could be forgiven for watching that your whole life. And just thinking that maybe athletes didn't have very much to say for themselves. <laughs> I discovered that nothing could be further from the truth and I spent a lot of time with these people and I, I would ask them that question, how do you feel? Not at the point at which they'd just won something big. I would ask them at five o'clock in the morning on a rainy Thursday morning when it was still dark and they were just showing up for a training session three years before an Olympic Games for which they had no sure expectation of even being selected, let alone winning. Now, if you ask someone who's shivering at five in the morning in the rain, how do you feel? You'll get a very different kind of answer from, from what they would give you on the finish line of a big race. I was just asking the same questions, but at different times. I discovered they were amazing people. I discovered that the depth of character you need to have to compete at that level is extraordinary. And the psychological motivations that people have, the things that happened to them when they were kids, I mean, they love winning so much and they hate losing so much. They're really amazing. Um, I trained myself a lot uh, because I, I in, in the book, there's a lot of race scenes. I wanted to make them authentic. And I feel that the only way I can make my books authentic is to spend time with the people and to, and to live a little bit of their lives. So I decided that I would get a coach and I would train up as a cyclist. <laughs> Um, I should give you some background. Um, I'm not very good at sport. I, uh, I had a report from a PE teacher at school. Do you say PE? Yeah, physical education. Um, this is when I was 12. 
and my end of year report from my PE teacher read, uh, Christopher tries very hard. <laughs> Uh, but we find it is safer to pass him a book than the ball. <laughs> That's the background I was coming from. But in my hubris, I thought, well, I can, I'm not going to be as fast as professional cyclists, but at least I can put myself through the same intensity of training. So I trained and trained. Um, and after two or three months, um, I had absolutely no progress at all. Uh, all I felt was a kind of a mournful sadness uh, that I wasn't getting quicker and a kind of exhaustion. But after four months, I started to get quicker. I had this sort of epiphany. I looked down at my legs in the shower one day and they were someone else's legs. They had muscles and everything. I thought, this is amazing. And, um, and I started to be able to cycle up hills that I hadn't previously been able to cycle up. And I started to beat my training partners up these hills. And I started to get a savage kind of joy from that, which I didn't know was in here. The fact that I started calling them my training partners was a sign that something had gone really badly wrong. And at least the people I used to refer to as my friends. But it does this to you. Sport sucks you in, and you want to get better, and you want to get quicker, and you discover that you like doing these things, like beating someone. In my normal work, it's not necessary for anyone else to fail in order for me to do my best work. Suddenly, you put yourself into a sporting context and this monster comes out. I think this, this thing is in all of us and it's, it's disturbing and exciting to find it in there. And I hope that some of the visceral contact with that beast that we all have in us comes out in the race scenes in the book. I try, I, I, I do these things because I want to to convey almost some of the fear of confronting those animalistic parts of you that want to win and do not want to be beaten. Uh, I made myself sick through training. You know, I, I trained for six months really, really hard and my hypothesis which was that I could put myself not through the same speed but through the same intensity of training as the professionals um, was proven not to be true. Uh, I got very slightly quicker um, and uh, then I made myself very seriously ill. So I trained too much for six months on the basis of not having um, a baseline of fitness to start with um, and I broke my immune system. Uh, my uh, white blood cell count went super low, um, and I went from being really fit uh, to being someone who could hardly get out of bed. I struggled to post a letter in the mailbox at the end of the street. Um, I went for lots of blood tests. Um, my immune system was really compromised, and the only thing I could do was to wait for it to get better. And it was while I was in that state, feeling really sick and ill, um, that I realized the kind of book that I really did want to write about sport and about these rivalries. I realized that what I had found very beautiful about sport was the way it embodied health. I hadn't really realized what health was until I suddenly didn't have it anymore, this thing that we all take for granted until it isn't there. And so I became very interested in ill health. And I realized if I wanted to tell a true story about sport, then I had to weave it in with the story about someone who's very, very sick. And so what I've done is I've given the child of two sporting parents, she's called Sophie, I've given her a very serious but survivable illness. 
which is childhood leukemia. It's an amazing story that of childhood leukemia. When I was growing up, um, 30 years ago, it was almost unsurvivable. Right? Nine out of ten children who are diagnosed with, with childhood leukemia would not make it. Now, nine out of ten children will go into remission. They'll recover. It's incredible um, what medical science has done in that area. And indeed, actually, in a lot of other cancers, there's a lot of progress being made. Um, but it's still a very serious illness. And I spent some time researching that. I spent um, a long time in a hospital in London called Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children. And I saw some incredible things there. I was allowed to shadow a doctor who was a, a paediatric haematologist. I was able to be in the consulting room while he was offering the diagnoses of some very serious illnesses to some very sick children. And uh, on that, the character of Sophie is based as, as she is battling against this disease. I saw some amazing things. Um, many of you will have had contact with hospitals. Uh, I discovered that they weren't the places of misery and trauma that I expected them to be. Certainly a children's hospital, I'd expected it to be brutally upsetting. Um, what I did find it was, was very surprising. And I hope I've managed to get some of the surprise into the novel. The first thing I saw at Great Ormond Street Hospital was a kid who was maybe seven years old. And uh, he was very, very thin emaciated really and he had sunken eyes he was wearing a green hospital gown that laced up at the sides uh, he'd lost all of his hair from chemotherapy and he was pushing an intravenous drip stand down the corridor of this hospital, you know what I mean by an intravenous stand with a, with a bag on it where fluid was being taken down in tubes into his arm and he uh, was pushing this down the corridor towards me um, and he was making this unearthly sound with his mouth as he'd moved, like this. It was... Uh, I said, right, your heart breaks when you see that. You just think, this is, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. This is a very ill child moaning as he pushes his IV stand down the hospital corridor. And I, um, I watched him and he got closer and closer and he was making this noise. I realised that I was standing in his way. I was just mouth open watching this. The first thing I'd seen in the hospital, I was wondering if I could really go through with this research project that I was trying to do. It was very upsetting. I realised I was standing in his way as he came closer and closer. And I sort of stepped back and I was like, oh, sorry. In fact, as he came past, pushing his intravenous strip stand, he looked up at me and a little smile came across his face and he made this noise. <laughs> and changed gear. Yeah, and he was driving his intravenous drips down the corridor. And he was having a great time. Right? Because, as well as being a very sick seven year old boy, he was also a seven-year-old boy, right? And no one had told him that he was supposed to be miserable. And this is what I saw again and again in the hospital. I saw these, these little people 
with big characters, right, who were just getting on with it because no one had told them they were meant to be crying all the time. Um, I, I saw um, a girl in there who was uh, maybe 12 years old, and she was smiling and laughing, and she had this um, sort of suit on her, like a medical-looking suit, and it was vaguely the same colour as her skin. It was sort of like a prosthetic skin colour suit. And it was inflated. And, it, and the effect of it was that her arms were lifted off her torso at an angle of about 45 degrees, like this. And I'd assumed that that was because her skin wasn't allowed to touch itself. And they have a, a dermatology unit. And I thought that maybe she had a skin problem. Maybe she'd been burned, right? And this was a medical suit that meant her skin was not allowed to come in contact with itself. And so... I was very curious about what was wrong with her, but because I'm very well brought up, I couldn't go up to her and say, well, what is wrong with you? <laughs> very rude. So I asked the nurse, what is wrong with her? <laughs> and the nurse had a good look, and she said, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with her. Um, that's Sadie. Um, what she's wearing is a sumo wrestler's suit, um, and she's just here to entertain the children. <laughs> And you saw this again and again. You go into it with this mindset. It's like everything that I see here is going to be tragic. And actually, most of the things that you see in there are beautiful. Um, There's a big secret that I learned in the hospital. And um, I met some kids whose characters were just luminous, amazing little people. And, and most of them would survive. And it was a place um, of great suffering. Uh, of great emotional intensity, but not necessarily of tragedy. And that's a place where a lot of people's lives would be changed, and not a lot of lives would be lost. Um, and I hope I've got something of that character into the book as well. So that's, that's gold in a nutshell. That's the novel. It's um, the story of a great rivalry. It's the story of sickness and of health. It's a story about the personal cost of public success. How much should we actually give up in the name of our ambition? Um, if you read it, I really hope you'll enjoy it. It's the most interesting project I ever researched. I hope something of that has come across in the novel. If you read it, I hope you'll think it's fun. Uh, and I'm really happy to answer your questions about it now, um, about this and about any of my other books. I'm, I'm really happy to answer whatever you have, so go ahead. But did people hear the question? What what research I did for Little B? The um, the first part was completely accidental. Um, as a student, I um, was doing anything to make the rent in the long summer holiday, which was nearly four months long, and I uh, was working as a casual labourer. So the deal was, I signed up with an employment agency, and you showed up at 6am, you got onto a bus, and they would take you to wherever the work was that day. And so I was working in the fields, um, I was working on construction sites, I was working in kitchens, and one of the jobs that they took us to was to work in the kitchen of an immigration detention centre, five miles from the place where I'd been studying for three years. We'd been told all that time that it was a prison. We hadn't been told it was an immigration detention centre. 
And we were still told, when we were working there, we were told that it was a prison. And I, I started to talk to some of the people in the line as they came up to be served food. And they obviously weren't dangerous prisoners, otherwise we wouldn't have been allowed to have contact with them. Um, and they were also from all over the world. They were from Sierra Leone, um, from Somalia, from Rwanda, um, from Nigeria, from the Balkans, where there was a war raging at that point. Um, from everywhere that was war-torn at that point in history, that's where they were from. And I think this is not the typical makeup of, of a prison in Oxfordshire. Right? And I started to ask these people, almost as an icebreaker, you know, well, how did, what did you do wrong to get here? <laughs> no, I, don't, I mean, maybe that's not the great conversational gambit in a prison, but I didn't know any better. And I was asking them, what did you do? And they said, oh, no, we did not do anything wrong. And after a while, I started to believe them. It was true. They hadn't done anything wrong. They were refugees. Right? It's not illegal to come to the United Kingdom as a refugee. It's not illegal to come to the UK and seek political asylum. And yet, we were detaining these people. We were locking them up um, in this centre, in this prison-like centre. They weren't allowed to leave. We had no legal basis for doing that. And we still don't. You know, we continue to detain these people. I was very shocked by that. I was listening to their stories, and I found them very interesting people. You know, they'd lived much bigger lives than I had lived, or have lived. Yeah? And uh, so that was the first thing. Completely by accident, I was exposed to asylum seekers, to refugees. I, I, I became friendly with some, I corresponded with them. The second part of the research um, was... Um, years later, when I decided to write the book properly, um, I did formal interviews with refugees. So um, between 30 and 35 um, refugees, I sat them down, um, I turned on my microphone, um, and I said, tell me what happened to you. you know, I'm, I'm a very basic interviewer. I tend to turn the microphone on and let people talk. Um, and so I listened, I transcribed, I would sometimes ask, supplementary questions, but mostly just listen. Um, and that's when I began to learn about um, the kinds of situations that they fled from. It was, a, it was an eye-opener to me, um, the kinds of cruelties that exist in the world. Um, I learned things that I wish I could unlearn, um, specifically about torture. A lot of these people were victims of torture and atrocity in the places they fled. I learned a lot about uh, human beings' capacity for cruelty. Um, the kinds of things that people do to each other, I wish I could unlearn. The way that torturers make their victims complicit in their own torture and in the torture of family members um, was very harrowing. I learned a lot about that. Um, the third thing was uh, book learning lot of book learning. I had to learn a little bit about Nigerian English as, as a subset of English. Um, I completely fell in love with Nigerian English. I think it's a very beautiful language. It's like English plus 20,000 words of extra and very detailed vocabulary um, plus a set of amazing proverbs and idioms that speak of a very big-hearted language. Uh, there's, a, there's a proverb that I end the book with, little b, some Nigerian proverb. Uh, 
If your face is swollen from the severe beatings of life, smile and pretend to be a fat man. <laughs> I, I, like the, I like the humor and the pathos. Right? How, how sad that either figuratively or literally one needs to have a proverb about what to do if you've been severely beaten up. Um, and how charming that it's, that it's twisted with humor. And, and I found that so often in the proverbs and idioms of, of Nigerian English. And, and that's what I fell in love with. Before I fell in love with the character, I fell in love with the language. And so that was the third component. So there were three components of the research. The first was experiential. Uh, I, I found myself in an immigration detention center. The second was formal. I interviewed a lot of refugees. Um, and the third was linguistic. It was a big sort of journey into the language. And those three strands of research came together into the character of Little B. And to the story that you were... Yeah. yeah. Started with a character and then she she went where she would, really. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Great question. Your wife is a book club discussed your book, Little B, today. And everybody was dying of writing. They were little, they were all disappointed with the end. Was there a... This is just a, a little sort of a more subjective statement. No, that's <laughs> was, there, was there any violence in the book club? Not necessarily. We wait quickly were hiding behind your wonderful writing. We couldn't come to consensus. session in the north of England, just up on, on the borders between England and Scotland, um, that had to be uh, finished by the library security, uh, because the two halves of the town had radically different views on the politics of immigration. I ended up in a fist fight at a literary event. And whilst I could never condone violence, I think, I think it's really exciting that people... <laughs> people care about books. Right? It's just a novel. But at the same time, it's a novel. You know, and it's a real novel. If people uh, get excited about it, want to talk about it, uh, and I've never wanted to have the last word as a writer, ever. I, I, I've, my job, I think, is to, is to look at the moral questions at the heart of how we live now as a society and to tee those questions up in a really compelling way right? so, that, so that people want to engage with them. Because I'm not a politician, you know. I, I I think that these issues are interesting, but I don't have an answer, and I'm not trying to be elected. I, I'm, I'm just saying, I think it would behove us all as citizens to examine these questions really deeply, um, and that's what I do. I set them up, and then I'm I'm really happy when people discuss them, and I'm super happy when people disagree. <laughs> actually, and and I like. 
I like it when people don't like my endings. Um, I'm also really apologetic. I'm sorry to the people who didn't enjoy the ending, but, um, but I, I left it ambiguous for a reason. I, um, I don't feel that I have the answers. Uh, and without wanting to spoil the book for people who haven't read it yet, um, there's uh, some doubt at the end over whether the protagonist, Little B, whether she lives or dies. Well, I didn't want to give the answer to that because I feel that if, if she survives, that means that the other characters in the book have, have done enough for her. They've helped her enough. Um, if she dies, the implication is that they haven't done enough for her. And the central question in the book is how much should we give? How much should we do? How, how far outside our comfort zone should we step in order to help other people into it? Uh, it's the age-old question of charity. And I felt that I didn't want to answer. You know, I, I wanted to set up the question, and I, I believe that I'm always writing up to my readers and that they will have ideas that are smarter or as smart as mine. Now, I didn't want to finish it. Um, and one of my readers at the event gave me a way of formulating that, which was a lot smarter than the way I had formulated it. And so I've appropriated that and pretended it was my idea ever since. Yeah. And she said... Uh, it's a book that leaves you with a stone in your shoe, um, which I like. You know, it doesn't hurt, but you know it's there, um, and, it, and it, it brings the question off the page and into one's own life, and that's what I, what I liked about it. Hi. And, um, <coughs> I saw the ending of course I didn't like it. Um, I think someone like me, who's an optimist, wanted to live, and but there was certainly the question, but what, what it meant to me was that she had found a purpose in her life that was bigger than herself. <clears throat> so she was willing to take the risk for this little boy that she learned to love. And, um, she had nothing when she came to England except herself, because she found something more, and whether she lived or died wasn't, to me, as much of an issue as that she was willing to sacrifice herself for something yeah, thank you. I, I also like the fact that um, her relationship with, with Charlie, with the boy in the book, um, portrays her as someone who is a very giving person, who is not just a victim and is not just a recipient of charity. And I, I met this again and again uh, with refugees, with asylum seekers. Um, very often in the media, they're portrayed as people who are always going to be beneficiaries as people who are always going to be a problem, uh, people who are going to be um, parasitical on the charity of the host nation. Well, actually, I discovered time and time again that this is not true. Right? Some of the poorest and most destitute people I have ever met were also the most giving of their love and of their time, and were actually model citizens. It was extraordinary. And, I, I, um, and you can also uh, you, you can compile a historical list of refugees throughout history. You know, some, of the, some of the greatest people of all time have been refugees. I, um, uh, Albert Einstein, Jesus Christ. You know, the, the refugees. I, and these are often like the most interesting people in any room they walk into. You know, they're people with different ideas because they're coming from a different place, mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And... and 
I, I thought it was interesting to portray a refugee as someone who had those qualities, who wasn't just sitting there asking for a handout of, of, of aid. And, and her, so her relationship with Charlie is, is interesting because it talks about what she, what she gives as well as what she receives. Um, with um, Zoe and Kate and their relationship, um, did you base that on people that you had interviewed and all? Or, and did you find that there was a difference when you interviewed um, men and women? That the kind of rivalries seemed to be similar or it didn't really matter? Great question. The, um, Sorry, my voice is going, so I'm trying to... The, um, the differences between men and women in sport were amazing. You know, uh, yeah, I interviewed a lot of male athletes and a lot of female athletes. I was determined to write this book as a rivalry between two male athletes for the simple reason that my two previous novels had had very strong female protagonists, and I wanted to demonstrate that I wasn't just a one-trick pony, <laughs> <laughs> and that I uh, had more of a range, and that I could write these male characters. And then the more I talked to them, and the more I talked with female athletes in my research, the more I realised that actually female athletes are more interesting. And they're suddenly more interesting to write about. Here's why. Um, sport is still really sexist. Right? It's a man's world. Um, and you don't really have to look far beyond TV coverage of sport to realise that that's unarguably true. Um, I'm really interested in cycling. Uh, the Tour de France is an enormous deal in cycling. It's on every summer. Everyone's glued to it. Um, it turns out there's a female version of the Tour de France. Uh, who, who knew? <laughs> um, it turns out there's, I mean, uh, soccer is the biggest game in my country. Um, to the extent where we don't call it soccer, we call it football. We consider it to be the original form of football. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> and the, um, it turns out there's a women's game. Right? It turns out women's soccer is equally hotly contested. Right? Um, equally exciting. It doesn't make it on TV at all. So number one, all of these athletes who are toiling away in total obscurity are doing it for a much purer form of glory than their male contemporaries. Right? They're doing it for a different reason. Um, second, uh, there's uh, the biological difference between men and women. Um, means that female athletes, just as they're coming to be at the top of their game in sport, um, are also being asked this question by society, by their partners, by their friends, and by themselves. Am I going to quit this and settle down and have a child? Just at that same point. Um, if a male athlete decides to have a child, decides to become a parent, he might miss a week of training. <laughs> If a female athlete decides to become a parent, she might miss two seasons um, out of a career which at the elite level might only be four seasons long. Right? So I realised that actually what women are doing is making a very conscious choice to be this athlete. Right? They, they can't combine family and work um, in the same way that their male contemporaries can. So they are giving up more. They are more committed. They are more hardcore. Um, and, and once I started talking to them, and realising the kind of psychological fire that is driving these people, and realising how interesting they were, um, I became more and more indignant that they weren't getting the same coverage. 
uh, once they realised that it was actually an extreme experience that they're living through and that society doesn't care, right? it doesn't show these sports on TV the same. I became very indignant as a woman. <laughs> my, my, my inner feminist came out again, unfortunately, and made me write this book from a female point of view. Um, which I didn't want to do. You know, I kind of dragged myself kicking and screaming to this realisation where the two characters would actually be more interesting if they were women because they would be more committed, they would have given up more. Um, I also got really interested in the double standards uh, in sport, and I hope some of that comes through. Um, athletes at the elite level live or die by their product endorsements as much as by their results, and that's how they make their money. Um, especially in a sport like cycling, there's not really any prize money to speak of. Um, Really, if you become the face of a particular product, that's your meal ticket. Um, in men's sport, it suffices to be really good at your sport. Um, so we have um, some fantastic soccer players in the UK, um, and some of them are no oil painting. You know? they're, they're very, very good at sport. They become the face of a particular brand of footwear without being very beautiful to look at. Um, whereas uh, if you look at the female versions of the same sport, it's expected not only that women should have terrific results in the sport, but also that they should be tremendously good-looking in order to get the product endorsements. And if you look through all of the sports in the UK, um, the women who have the product endorsements are not necessarily the best people at the sport. You know, they might be the third, fourth, or fifth best, but they are actually the best-looking. And so we haven't really progressed far um, in terms of our attitudes to gender in sport. And so it just it made it a more compelling story to write if I wrote about women. Sorry, a long and rambling answer to a really good question. Thank Thanks. You. Hi. Um, a couple of months ago, we had the um, Irish mystery writer, Tana French, here. And uh, one of the things that she told us, uh, I was kind of surprised that she said that um, her books... Uh, are not really bestsellers in Ireland. That she sells more books here in the, in the United States than in Germany. I think was the other place. So I wanted to pose that same question to you. I mean, we know you're really popular here in the United States, but um, what about at home and in Europe and Australia, Africa? Great question. Um, yeah, Tana French, is that what she said as well? The people yeah, that she said that, um, she, that, you know, she, was, she had a much bigger following here in the U.S. <laughs> than in Ireland. Which I, you know, I found really hard to believe because she's an actress, you know, mm -hmm. she's really well known. Yeah, she's a very good writer. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I, I um, have been very moved by the reception that my stuff has had in America. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little guy, you know, physically and spiritually. <laughs> you know, I, I, I live in the suburbs of London. I live a quiet and ordinary life. And I write these stories um, because they are compelling to me. And the stories start with a question. My, my questions are always like, you know, because in Little B, the question is the old question of charity and how much should we give? Um, in gold, the question is how much should we um, give up 
of our ambition in order to love. I don't start off thinking, well, who's going to be interested in these books and in what countries? I'm, I was start because the question won't leave me alone. I, I wrote Gold because I was setting off on a book tour and my then six-year-old um, saw me packing for the book tour and uh, he knew what was coming. He doesn't like it when I go away on tour. He, um, he said, oh, you're off again, are you? <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, sorry, you know, I've got to go. This is part of who I am. That's what I do. And we've been through this. <laughs> he, he pulled up his little arms like this, looked away. He's like, yes, well, don't worry about us. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> sort of passive aggression that he had at that age. Don't know where he gets it from. <laughs> the, and uh, it, was very, it was funny. And then it was sad because he started crying and he was like, Daddy, please don't go. And uh, that's not because I'm an amazing parent. That's because every six-year-old likes it more when there's a parent about And uh, this scene... Um, ended with me having to prise his little fingers off my leg so that I could get into the car to go to the airport. Right? It was very sad. And what, what comes first, our ambition or our love? You know? My ambition is to be the writer I can be, you know, to go out and tell people about my work because I want to engage with it. Um, but the people I'm doing it for, the people I, you know, I'm prising their little hands off my leg so that I can leave. It doesn't figure, and this is the same problem that everyone has in their life, I'm sure about this. Like, it's always reformulated like, as, as work-life balance, or as what comes first, family or your career. Or, um, these questions eat me up, and I'm, I'm a little writer sitting in a shed that leaks, um, <laughs> writing about my small problems, which, which turn out to be the same problems everyone has. Right? And that's the thing, and that's what's really surprising, is that you, you, you put these books out into the world, and the, the way people respond to them is constantly surprising. Um, the fact that people um, in other countries are interested in my work was a huge surprise to me. Uh, the fact that people in America love my work is a huge honour and a privilege. And I get to tour America. It's amazing. It's a, it's a hyper-accelerated form of tourism, I'd recommend it. <laughs> you go from coast to coast, city to city, you do a different city every single day. And you don't get to see the stuff, you don't get to see the tourist stuff, the buildings, the monuments, the museums, the art galleries, but you do get to meet a hundred people in every town, and you get to kind of take the temperature of a place, and this place is incredible. Like, America could not be a more varied and diverse place. I have favourites and least favourite cities in America, which I cannot reveal. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's a huge privilege. It's incredible. Yes, I, um, people read my stuff more here than they do back home. It's a huge surprise to me. I don't have a theory about why that is. All I am is honoured and, and grateful. Let's do one more question, okay, so we can sign for Where did it come from? 
Well, he's a, he's a great little kid. <laughs> and sometimes, especially writing about children, um, I find them quite... I, I just take dictation. You know, but I think my, um, my work is carefully researched. I, I think what I do is quite different from what a lot of other novelists do. And my stuff is a hybrid between journalistic reportage and fiction. So I, I'm very interested in um, worlds that are hidden from view. Uh, I like to go out and find out about people who we don't know about. You know, my, my first book, Incendiary, is about a woman who's traumatically bereaved. Actually, that's the quietest world. People don't talk about it. People don't talk about that kind of bereavement. You have to go and find out. Um, refugees are the quietest people on earth. Right? Um, uh, asylum seekers in my country, often living without work permits and without a definite right to remain, very low profile people. Um, and they, ironically, they have the biggest stories. Right? We, I find that we live in an age where the people who have the least to say speak loudest. But, um, in, in my country, we have this phenomenon of reality TV. We celebrate mediocrity. Like the closer people are to the norm, the louder they get. It's like, look at me. Normal, 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 normal. Uh, completely boring people who get so much oxygen. Right? And I'm really interested in people who are far out on the margins, right? who, are, who are living beyond the pale. Who are, who are living at the extreme. I like these hidden lives. I like talking about very high-level athletes here because these are people who are hiding in plain sight. Uh, we think we know them. We don't. Uh, we get these little anodyne sound bites from them. Actually, they, they epitomize something which is really important in our culture and I wanted to know them better. So I don't, I don't ascribe to myself any particular... Um, insight or wisdom into humans in general. What I think I do do is make time for myself to go out um, into these hidden worlds and ask people a lot of questions until I start to understand a little bit more about their experience far out on the margins. And I think that by trying to understand those people who live in a place that you can't Google, and in a place that you can't look up on Wikipedia, um, I think that has the effect of shining light on the way we live here, closer to the centre. So I don't, for me, I don't think it's about wisdom or insight. I think it's about exploration and curiosity and going out to the margins and doing research and reporting back. And that's what I try to do. I try to faithfully report back. Not, not as a list of facts, not in reportage, but in fiction which I think is something that is neat and concise and powerful and emotionally true. So I go out and find these hidden worlds and, and I hope that I faithfully report back on them in a way that's emotionally true. And that's how I see my job. <laughs> <laughs>